before we get into the Word of God, I want to say as the pastor who had a, uh, many of you wouldn't know this, but my grandfather, whom I'm named after, my grandfather Clint, uh, I spent my summers with him as a child, and uh, he bought me my very first car, and he bought me my second car, because my first car was a 1964 Volkswagen Beetle that was painted by him with a roller. <laughs> and, it, and it had uh, gnats trapped in the paint job, and I'd, I'd pop a bubble and I'd pull a gnat out because he lived in South Georgia. Um, but I loved him dearly, and uh, he flew 39 missions over Europe uh, as, a, as a belly gunner, two Purple Hearts, two Distinguished Flying Crosses. Couldn't have been more proud of him. At the end of his life, professed faith in Christ. And uh, so I loved my grandfather. My father was a Marine. Peggy's father, uh, retired military colonel. And so I have nothing but the utmost respect for the men and women that serve our country. And I'm grateful, truly grateful. So I wanted to say that. Um, let me also turn our attention to um, me taking this microphone up. No, not really. Um, it's just right in my face, and I prefer it not to be there, and it's easy enough to remove, so you may see me do that. Let's pray. Father, the most important thing about us, any of us, is what we think about when we think about you because you are the supreme being of the universe. And as we gather together to look at your word, it is your word that you have used to communicate with your people through the centuries. Now you have your spirit and you have other ways, but primarily it is through your word. So God, as we gather, I pray that your word would be taught faithfully always from this pulpit, whether it's me or someone else, and that your people would receive your word as it truly is, a word from the God of the universe. May we be a people of your word. May we place ourselves under the authority of your word. Father, would you illumine the truths of your word now today to us that we may know you and follow you all the days of our life. And Father, we, we do thank you for the little ones and the great uh, joy it is to have them to remind us of you, the beauty of newness of life. And so uh, we give thanks to you this morning. May you teach us. Now, may you use me, forgive me my sins, there are many, and speak through me through the power of your Holy Spirit, amen. It is my belief, and this is kind of shocking maybe, it is my belief that more people attending churches, and not just attending churches, but preaching from the pulpits of America this morning throughout the United States are not truly 
disciples, followers, Christians. Now, I said not just the people sitting in the pews, but the men and the women standing to preach those people to those people. It is my belief that there are more that are not truly followers of Christ than are followers of Christ. That should alarm us. That should send our antennas up. Matthew 7 informs my belief about this. We're going to look at Matthew 7 a little later today. But also my personal experience informs me about this with God's church. And I'm not at all saying uh, First Baptist Chattahoochee. I'm saying God's church more in a universal way. I have literally been in places all over the world and met with people in God's church. And I've been in lots and lots of churches in the United States. And that informs my decision as I say that. Our passage today sheds light on this mystery. And I believe that the passage today, and the reason it's the first time since I've been at this church that I chose just two verses to teach on. And it's because I think these two verses are absolutely critical to understanding saving faith. Biblical Christianity. And so, with that, look with me in your Bibles again. Joni has read it, but look at uh, verse 30 and 31. I'm, I'm reading out of the ESV. You're reading maybe out of the NIV, uh, just probably a smattering of King James and different things. But essentially, it's the same thing. Listen to this verse again. In verse 30, as he was saying these things, Many believed in him. As Jesus was saying these things, many believed in him. Now, the very next verse. Don't miss this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Did you catch that? Let's go back. Because if you miss this, I think you miss where I'm going today. It says, many believed in him. But then the very next verse, Jesus says to those who had believed, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So this passage is establishing that we can believe in Him, but not truly be Christians. You can believe in Jesus and not be a Christian. As a matter of fact, there are a lot of people that are sitting in churches like this today all over the world and all over our country who believe in Jesus, but in fact, aren't going to heaven. They will, in fact, spend eternity separated from God in a place that the Bible calls hell. That's a hard fact. The Bible teaches here 
and in other places throughout it, that there are essentially three kinds of people in the world. There's only three in all of the world, which is interesting to me because you think about all the diversity and all the different people all over the planet. But the Bible sums us all up in basically three categories. The three categories are this. The first category is the unbeliever in Jesus. The first category is the unbeliever in Jesus. John 8, 24. Listen to what he says there and look with me, if you would, at John 8, 24. Jesus, just above where, we're teaching, where I'm teaching from today, is telling the Jews, and you can see it on the screen, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So the Bible is clearly saying there are many who will not believe in Jesus and they'll die in their sins, meaning they'll spend eternity separated from God in hell. The second category, I said there's three. The second category is fake believers. So you have unbelievers in Jesus, and you have fake believers in Jesus. And in this, clearly in John 8, 31, our passage today, it says, you know, if you look at 30, many believed, but then in 31, it says, if you abide in my word, you are truly, that word truly is key. You are truly my disciples, if you abide in my word. So you have unbelievers in Jesus, and then you have fake believers in Jesus. Again, Matthew 7 is going to shed a lot of light on this, and we're going to go there later. But uh, you see here, Jesus is saying, you can believe in him and not be his disciple. And I don't want you to be confused by the words, his disciple. Some ministries and organizations will say, okay, you can be his disciple and that's different than being a Christian. And I want you to know that's just not true. The Bible uses that word synonymously. You're either a disciple, a Christian, a follower of Christ, or you're not. You're not like super disciple and then Christian. There's not, there's not categories. So when, when the Scripture, when our text is saying this, know that when it says you're my disciple, he's just saying you're my Christian. You're my follower. Okay? There's not a distinction. So, but there is this distinction that Jesus is making here that the true Christian abides in his word. So abiding in his word becomes the key to not just understanding our text today, but also for knowing if we're really a true Christian. And so all of a sudden... The stakes get really raised on what does this idea of abiding mean? If I'm going to understand my own salvation and others, I need to know what abiding means. That's a big deal. The third category, so that was the second. So I said the first category is unbelievers in Jesus. The second category is fake believers in Jesus. The third category is true believers. It is those who abide 
in the Word, have their sins forgiven, and by the sacrificial atoning work of Christ, enter into His rest, His kingdom, His favor. Those are the true believers. So you have the unbeliever, the fake believer, the true believer. Those are the only three people in the world, honestly. In this situation, if you go back to like 824, you know, where it says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So the true believer has that problem taken care of. They have their sins canceled out by the death of Christ, by the atoning work of Christ. They are adopted into the family of God and made a child of His forever. If we are His, we've escaped the penalty of sin by trusting in Christ. He comes into our lives and we begin, even in this life, to taste the joys and the glory of the heaven to come. Now, you might say, I don't get that. How do we in this life begin to taste the joys and the glory of the heaven to come? Let me, let me hopefully shed some light on that. We taste and enjoy the glory in this life by seeing him in our own life story. In other words, our small story that we're trying to make big, we begin to see him in our small story, and it does make it big. That is a beginning, a beginning of the taste of the glory of God. We, um, by realizing that we're not left to random chance, that my life ultimately has meaning, that he loves me, he loves you as his child and has adopted you, that you will not face anything in this life alone, that the greatest being in all of the universe before he thought about you and he thought about little Joseph and he thought about you, that is the beginning of the taste of glory. Those are echoes of his favor and the goodness towards his people. Now, as parents, most of us here are parents, not all of us, but you, you can relate to this even if you're not a parent. When we were, when we were raising our children, and uh, we now have three that are all in college, two, Lord willing, will be out in May, and I'll get a big raise. Um, when we were raising our kids, the emphasis that I saw shift from their longing for mom and dad's attention and approval. When they got into grade school, you could see it. It just started shifting to their need for their peers' approval and for their peers' friendship. And, and it was kind of sad as a parent because, you know, it's fun to be the dad that comes home and you're the hero but then as they get a little bit older, that starts to fade and you realize, yeah, I'm just another smut in their life. But we switched our children from one school 
to another. And uh, it became clear to me how hard that deep longing for friendship could be and is. And so the human desire in all of us, whether we know it or not, is to be known and to know. That's why having friends is such a big deal. Even having a best friend, you know. These desires are deep and filled with real emotion. So one of our children, and I won't say which one, told us their first semester at the new school, now imagine yourself as a parent of this child, their first semester at the new school, pretty much that whole first semester, they ate their lunch in the bathroom because they were the new kid at the school and they didn't have any friends yet, and lunch would go for an hour, and it was embarrassing to be sitting there by yourself eating your lunch. So she'd take her, this child, not to be named, would take her food into the bathroom and eat. When I heard this as a father, I had probably a couple of reactions. I wanted to go up there to the school, find every child I could and punch them in the face and say, be my friend of my child. And then also just a crushing emotion like, all of us know the pain of unfulfilled longings. It strikes a nerve in our very soul. It's almost like that dental probe hitting the raw nerve at the dentist office. We just... We feel it. We feel it. To be alone in the world and friendless feels lonely, feels empty, feels really, really sad. But to truly know God in this life is to never be alone. To know God in this life is to know that He is for you and He will never leave you. That comes right out of Isaiah 41. To know God is to find freedom and peace in this world that the world cannot and will not offer. To know God in this life is to have your sin forgiven and your soul redeemed. And so even if I sit in the bathroom and I eat my lunch alone, I do so with the joy of belonging to the family of God, with great hope that He's using even that for my good and for His glory. You see, that is tasting of the glory of God in this life. That is hearing the echoes of His grace and of His goodness. Our text, our text begs that we answer a few questions. I knew he couldn't make it the whole round. See, buddy. Yep. Our text begs for answers to a few questions. Here are the questions. What is, because Jesus says, my word. You need to abide in my word. What is my word? The second one is, How do we abide in His Word? 
And then the third one is, how do we know if we are truly abiding in His Word? It seems that biblical Christianity and salvation itself hinges on this issue. And so, look with me in your Bibles. I wish that you would turn to 2 Corinthians 13.5. I think I actually made it to 16 minutes before I took my coat off today. I'm trying to get a record here. I'm working up. It's like a workout. See how long I can make it. 2 Corinthians 13.5. Listen to what this text says. This is, this is profound for the believer and for, and for the non-believer. It says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test. The Bible is telling us to test ourselves. It isn't telling me necessarily to test you. It's telling you to test yourself. Now, this test is like a take-home test that only you can grade. I can, I can help you. I can help you on the test by showing you where to go for some of the answers and what verses to look at. But ultimately, the Holy Spirit of God must speak to the soul of the individual for them to know or not to know where they are in their relationship with God. So, with that groundwork laid, first question, what is my word? Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. I need to know what his word is if I'm going to be able to abide in it. What is he saying when he says that? So the word is singular, my word. It's not my words. It's my word. This means that Jesus is thinking of the sum of everything that he has taught. We could leave it right there. Abide in the sum of everything I've taught. That's what you're to do. That's what Christians do, is they abide in the sum of the Word of God. That's what they do. And so we could leave it there. Perhaps, though, Jesus wants us to ponder the sum of all that He has taught. And so one way we could do that is just looking at John. We've said and we've seen as we've looked through the, the Gospel of John, in John 6.35, he says, I am the bread of life. He who eats of me finds life. He, he says in John 8.12, I am the light of the world. He says in John 8.23, I am not of this world, but the Father has sent me. He says in John 10.11, I am the good shepherd. In John 11, I mean 10.38, I am, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And see, on and on and on, but I would say all that Jesus says points back to him. When he says, abide in my word, you could look right over at John 15, 5, and you can see he says, abide in me. My word is me. 
I am my word. Abide in me. And those that abide in him are his. So, all of Jesus' words point to him. So then the question, the second question, how do we abide in him? How do we abide in him? The mark of a true Christian is not that we taste, but it is rather that we stay. The mark of a true Christian is not that you tasted of spiritual things, but that you stay. Abide, the word abide doesn't mean anything more or less than remain. We remain with Him in His Word, in Him. His Word is Him and He is His Word. We remain with Him. It's like when Jesus turned and asked Peter, what about you, Peter? When 5,000 people left, Peter said, to whom shall we go? You, O Lord, have the words of life. Where are we going to go? Abide, and I'm just going to hit a few things to help you understand this word, means not ceasing to be persuaded by the real truth, never elevating anything over God's truth. Abide means not ceasing to be attracted by its beauty and its value, His beauty and His value. Never seeing anything as more beautiful or more valuable or more attractive than the Word and the Lord that it reveals. Abide means not ceasing to rest in its grace and power. Abide means never ceasing to eat or drink from the Word as the bread of heaven and the living water. Abide means never walking, never ceasing to walk in the light of the Word, as though any other light could show you the secrets of this life. So, this is where we come to kind of some of the challenge. How and why do people miss this basic, all-important, eternal truth? People sitting in churches all over America have missed this today. My first answer to this would be, our flesh, your flesh, my flesh, is spring-loaded to justify and try and save ourselves. Look again at our text today. I want you to look at the verse. It was the verse right after the verses that... Joni read and I read. So let me read it. Let me read 31 again and get to it so that it's in the context. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And here's their answer. And this is what I want you to hear. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham. And have never been enslaved to anyone. Maybe they didn't know their history very well. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. I want you to notice two things there. 
You see what their response was? Their immediate response was, I got a pedigree, dude. I'm from Abraham. I don't know if you've noticed this, Jesus, but Abraham was a big deal in the Old Testament. So I'm kind of a big deal around here. They were justifying themselves. And you know, I think that we use our pedigree just like that sometimes. And honestly, if I just be real transparent with you for just a moment, in my study this week, I was reading that, and one of the struggles in my life is I wished, I wished, and if I would have written my own story, my father would have been someone like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I don't know if y'all know who that is, but he was a brilliant German. And my mother probably would have been another physicist herself, and I would have went to the most prestigious universities in the world, and as I stood up here to talk, I would have a long list of degrees behind my name. But you know what the truth is? My father was a beer salesman. My mother didn't finish high school. My pedigree, if you want to say it that way, is not all that great. It's not that impressive. When I read this text, I wept. I wept because God didn't let my pedigree keep me from knowing him. I think that if I'd have had the pedigree that I would have written for myself, I would not be standing here. God allowed me to not have that pedigree so that my real pedigree is I'm a child of the king. And for you, it is the same. You are his, and he is yours. I want to say this. It may be, talking about pedigrees, that being in church, and this is going to sound very twisted to you probably, it may be that being in church is one of the most dangerous things for our souls because it allows us to believe in Jesus without saving faith in Jesus. We begin to think because we go to church and we're moral and we do good things, that we must be His. But apart from a regenerating, in Ezekiel it says, God takes out the heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. Apart from a regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, you can go to church day, night, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. You can tithe. You can be the most moral, upright, standing citizen on the planet. And if God hasn't done a regenerating work in your heart, you're lost. And that's what he was saying to the Jewish people. You believe, but you're not truly my disciple. And it is my heart. Is if, if there's someone sitting here that believes but hasn't had that experience that God would speak to you, that you would know in your soul, and between you and God, you would make that right. There are only three categories of people. Those that don't believe in Jesus. Those that are fake believers. And I would say maybe just 
disillusioned and those that really know him. The second point in in answering my question, how and why do people miss this basic, all-important eternal truth? One, I said, our flesh is spring-loaded to justify and save ourselves. The second one is, we do not see the holiness of God and the depth of our sin the way the Bible explains it. We don't. We compare ourselves to the other people in the church, and typically we can find somebody here that's worse than us, and we can start to feel good about ourselves. Well, I'm better than so-and-so, you know? And that's not God's standard. God's standard, and, and I wish we could get our heads around it, but we're finite creatures and we can't. He is holy. He is holy. And on your best day, you're a pitiful sinner, but you don't believe it. You don't. I don't. I think I'm good because I compare myself to you. God's standard is holiness. And so when you look at Matthew 3 and you ask the question in the Beatitudes, God says this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs will be the kingdom of God. Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs will be the kingdom of God. You know what my next question is? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Do I qualify? This is what I think it means, to be poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit is to recognize your utter spiritual bankruptcy before God. It is understanding you have absolutely nothing of worth to offer Him. Being poor in spirit is admitting that because of my sin, I'm completely destitute, spiritually bankrupt, and I can do nothing to deliver myself. If you could do anything to deliver yourself, why would Jesus come and die? Why? He wouldn't, because you could do it. The issue is you can't, but you keep trying. And I keep trying. And so Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit because they're the ones that realize they're bankrupt before God. Spiritually, there is nothing they can do. And so they cry out, God save me, I'm a sinner. I need you. That's a blessing. And that's why he said, the poor in spirit are the blessed. My pedigree won't save me, and even the pedigree that I didn't get wouldn't save me. And thank God he didn't give it to me. He didn't give it to me because I would have been an arrogant, prideful jerk. The third reason people miss it, and this is the final reason, is we're not teaching the whole truth in the church. We're not. 
Men are standing up in front of congregations like you and they're not telling people the truth. For far too long, we've told people that they can get the Jesus salvation ticket without abiding in the Word of God, without abiding in Christ and loving Him as the supreme treasure that He is. Consequently, our churches are full of people like these Jews who think they know the Lord. But in reality, I don't think they do. Look with me now, finally, at Matthew 7, starting in verse 13, and I'm going to read through verse 20. Matthew 7, 13 through 20. This is why I say, I don't think our churches are full of Christians. I think they're full of fake Christians mostly, and some Christians. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide. He's talking to religious people. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And then he says, beware of false prophets, men that stand up here and tell you half-truth, who come to you in sheep's clothing. They say they're pastors when in reality, they're not even Christians. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? Are figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. There is symbolism there. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Now, lest you sit there and think to yourself, I'm a good tree. I bear good fruit. I don't want you to do that because I want you to see something much deeper. Good trees, if I didn't, I don't have time, but if you get over to Galatians 5 and it says the fruits of the flesh and the fruits of the spirit. What I want our church to rejoice in is when people in, in sincere humility come to one another and confess their sin of being mad at them or not giving them the benefit of the doubt and not respecting them and gossiping about them because that is good fruit. That is spiritual fruit. Now, you might look at yourself and say, well, I don't throw my trash out on the road when I'm driving down the road. Or if I do see trash, I pick up trash. That isn't necessarily the fruit that we're talking about here. We're not just talking about morality. We're talking about something that can't happen without the Holy Spirit of God living inside somebody and producing this fruit. A fruit that is humble. A fruit that is meek. A fruit that is forgiving. A fruit that is loving. I mean, really loving. Go back and read 1 Corinthians 13, 3. Love believes all things. It hopes all things. 
It gives the benefit of the doubt. You see, that is the fruit that we're talking about here. That is real fruit. And then there's also, I think, it's talking about people fruit. I think there's personal fruit, and I think there's people fruit. I think that true believers in their heart of hearts, whether they're good at it or not, they want other people to find the bread that is life. And they go about their day, and they pray about it, and they confess that they don't do it more, but in their heart of hearts, they want people to know the hope that they found. That's real Christianity. Real flowers have seeds, and they reproduce. Fake flowers look like real flowers, but they never reproduce. God's people, when they're real, when it's the real thing, that's their heart. That's their heart. But here's here's where, this is the last point I'm going to make. The most helpful question we should ask and be asking ourselves is not the question, do I believe in Jesus? You may be walking away thinking, do I believe in Jesus? I don't think that's the most helpful question. And here's why. But rather, am I finding him to be my source of life? Am I finding him to be my joy? Am I finding him to be where I'm really finding happiness? Am I finding him to be the true treasure that he is? Because that that separates the wheat from the chaff. Lots of us can believe in Jesus, but I think the mark of a true believer is that they're treasuring Jesus. That they can't live without Jesus. He is their hope. He is their joy. And when you talk to someone who's a true believer about Jesus, it just comes out. It's like talking to a newlywed couple who've just gotten engaged, and you ask them about their about-to-be spouse, and it just gushes, you know? It's like, yeah, they're just awesome. I just think they're just the greatest. And you're sitting over there married for 30 years going, (laughs) ha! You just wait, pal. A true believer gushes. Unfulfilled longings, like what I talked about with my child eating alone in the bathroom. You know what that really is? That's that's just a, a child illustration of what happens to all of us. And this is what I mean. She's eating alone in the bathroom, but really what's going on is God is causing her to see the unrealized longings and to come to the fountain of living water. That longing for friendship, deep and emotional, is a God-given longing. That longing to not be alone, you know what that really is? That's the soul aching. It's the soul telling you, 
You were meant for intimacy with your Creator. Now, yes, He'll use a friend, but it's more than that. Don't miss that. Those unfulfilled longings are your God calling you into His heart. Wanting to meet those longings for you. And so, I really believe you could sit in the bathroom and eat your sandwich alone, and if you were to remind yourself of that truth and let that wash over you, you could sit there with a smile and eat your sandwich and know that I'm not alone. I'm cherished beyond belief. And God will provide. He's going to provide friendship. He's going to provide what I need. I'm not alone. That's beginning to taste of what is to come. That is the beginning of grace. That is the beginning of beauty and goodness and friendship eternally. Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want So, I pray for you that you would discern which category you're in today. There are only three. The unbeliever, which would be someone who just says, I just can't believe, and we all know them. The fake believer, who is not abiding in the Word. They're not treasuring Christ. They're not trying to treasure Christ above all else. And then there's the true believer. The one who knows I am for him and he is for me. And that's really all that matters. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I pray that you would use this in our lives to push us towards you. For some, maybe the very first time. For others, it would push us more into your presence, that we would love you more today than we did yesterday, more tomorrow than we do today. I pray all of this.